This is the silent meditation part of the service. It's fine. If it's not working, that's okay. It's not present. Well, thank goodness the Holy Spirit is. All right. We are talking about the Holy Spirit this season, and the phrase, bigger is better, comes to mind today. And sometimes bigger really is better. Brian and I had a chance to visit the Great Wall of China a few years back when we went to go pick up Tobiah. And we went to a certain location. We were on a bus with the others who were in the process of adopting, and we got to the site, and Brian and I hit the ground running. We just wanted to cover every single inch of the Great Wall as we could. And so when they dropped us off there, these certain sections, at least the section we were, there was like... You could look over the edge, and that's the end of the Great Wall. The Great Wall isn't all connected. I don't know if you knew this. They were broken down pieces. And so we got to one edge, and it was like, okay, we can't go any farther. And so then we hiked down, and some of the steps were this high. Some of the steps were this high. Like, I'm not kidding. We were, like, crawling. And there were work people, like, fixing the stairs. And we just hiked the heck out of that thing. We hiked and hiked until the very last minute when the bus was leaving. Sometimes when we study scripture, it's like that where you want to get a big chunk so that you don't miss some of the themes, uh, so that you can see maybe just a bigger picture. And so that's how we are approaching. We are studying the book of Acts in these 40 days, but if you are doing the reading, it's a lot at once. Today in the sermon, it's a lot at once, but I hope that you will see some of the value for this. We are immersing ourselves in the book of Acts, the life of the early church during Lent, this season which John already talked about. It's a season of preparation so that when Easter comes, it's not like, oh my gosh, it's Easter already. It gives you this uh, transition time. Easter obviously is about the cross, but it also is about Jesus being raised from the dead. However, to be really prepared for the gift that the cross is, The the church has, for 2,000 years, considered it wise to spend this season repenting, considering our sin, considering the brokenness of the world, and lament. It sort of makes it all the much sweeter, then, when on Easter, you get to celebrate that life. Acts is the second in a two-part series. Luke, a follower of Jesus, he was a physician, recorded, he says in Acts 1, recorded everything that Jesus said and did until he was taken up to heaven. And then the book of Acts is the continuation of how God, who has been at work for centuries, worked through the early church to bring about what we now know as the church that that spread through evangelism. God began this good work. I don't want to make it sound like Jesus started the work. God was at work well before Jesus. And when Jesus left, God is still at work. So last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit is a gift. Brian talked about how God is always offering the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this season of Lent, we're focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in evangelical churches, we don't often think about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's like all Jesus Talk a little bit about God, God the Father, and then, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit is like the afterthought. Instead, we want to really narrow in and focus on this person of the Godhead. What does the Holy Spirit do, and what does it mean for us? So, I want you to know that it's still, you still have time to catch up. Oh, help me. I need my book. Where is my book? 
My book is in my backpack back by the kitchen. Otherwise, I can't read (laughs) the sections of scripture. Yes. So we have our books, and there are some over there on the table if you'd like to join in. If you're online or if you're in the room, it's the New Living Translation. So if you have one of those copies, uh, it's a little blue book that says the book of Acts. Yep, just that's it. Nope, that's not the right book. It's fine. Help me, Lord. You know, it's always something. Whenever Brian's not in the room, it's always something. So the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. You can just give me one of those on the table. Yep. The Holy Spirit has been given to those who have repented and believed. The early church was gathering. They were, oh, see, now I'm going to have two of them. It's fantastic. See, ask and you shall receive, right? The Holy Spirit's been given. Uh, Peter and John have preached, gotten into trouble, gotten into jail, gotten bust out of jail by an angel. They've seen the church go from about 130 believers to thousands. Certain days it says 3,000 or 5,000 people came to know Jesus. It says in Acts 2 that the early believers gave so that no one had any need. There were food distributions, there were healings, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, conflict with the religious leaders, and conflict with the local government. There was already racism, lying, and did I mention conflict? It was a very full, busy time of change in Jerusalem, which was the religious center of Judaism at the time. Also, culturally, there were some major shifts. There were some new thoughts. There were some new practices. So today, we're going to pick up the story in chapter 6 with Stephen. Stephen is one of the followers of Jesus, and it says in verse 8, you can follow along in your Bible or the words are on the screen. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed many amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of free slaves, which is not a cult, but it was like a separate section of Judaism at the time, started to debate with him, debated with Stephen. There were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which this, which with, (laughs) with, nope, help me, with Stephen, what, oh my gosh, what Stephen said, gosh, do you ever just have those days, you go, the problem is mine happens on stage with a microphone on my face. Stephen proceeds to give one of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible. He gets like 53 verses. There are a lot of Steves, we have a lot of Steves in our church. Stephen continues to be a very popular name. Stephen, it says, was full of God's grace and power. In this sermon, Stephen somehow in 53 verses summarizes the history of Israel. That's a feat, because if you've ever seen the Bible, the Old Testament's pretty thick. Stephen reminds the listeners that Israel has a history of God being at work, pursuing God's people. But... Israel also has a history of not listening. And he parallels it to what has happened recently, that they didn't listen to Jesus either. The leaders of the day were disobeying God just like Israel did years ago when they created the golden calf or when they refused to trust God. And then he picks it up in verse 51. Stephen says, you stubborn people, you are heathens at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. 
They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hand of angels. Now, if I ever like came up here and talked to y'all like that, I don't know how many of you would come back the next week. And you can imagine how this sermon went over with those listening. They picked up stones and they killed him. Well, persecution continued and spread. And during Stephen's death and many others, there's this little line that said there was a man named Saul who approved of what was happening. Saul actually also didn't just kill Christians. He was also imprisoning them, sort of in a sense hunting them down. Up to this point in the book of Acts, most of the persecution, and I think it's all of it, but I'll say most just in case I'm wrong, came from the religious leaders. Rome will have their hand in it later, don't get me wrong. But at this point, it's really the religious leaders who are not having what these early disciples are doing. Yet healings, joys, conversions continued. And the Holy Spirit came upon those least likely to be blessed by God, at least, least likely according to the Jewish Christians. There was this group called the Samaritans. So we've studied the Good Samaritan passage. Maybe you've even heard about like the Good Samaritan law. The Samaritans were not friends with the Jews. They were divided. And yet even upon these people, the early Christians see them being filled with the Holy Spirit, saying yes to Jesus, and being baptized. Then there's this African. He's an Ethiopian, not just random person, but a leader in the government, who is hungry to know Jesus, is baptized, and history is that that is how the good news went into Africa. The biggest shock of all of them, maybe, was Saul, the leader of the persecutions, the bad dude. I'm going to call him the Christian eliminator today. Because that was what he felt called by God to do. We're going to wipe this thing out. We're just going to get rid of it. And this is who comes to know Jesus. It is a pivotal part in the book of Acts. Now, it took a while, you can imagine, for the disciples to trust this guy. I mean, is he being a spy? Is he trying to like get on the inside so that he knows everybody? No, the story is he's actually coming to know who Jesus is. Eventually, they do trust him, and Paul, Saul becomes Paul, and Paul becomes one, becomes one of the busiest church planters, and fairly successful considering the early church became the church, which we are now a part of 2,000 years later. It says in chapter 9, verse 31, then the church had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. There's this woman named Tabitha who is brought back from the dead. She's in Joppa, which is part of Israel, but in my understanding, it was also infiltrated with a decent amount of Gentiles. Well, she gets brought back from the dead. Kind of a big deal. That hasn't happened since Jesus had been on earth. Peter is there when it happens. Peter, because of this, stays for a while, and Luke just sort of puts in there, he's staying with a tanner. So a tanner is someone who works with animal skins and makes them into leather. That was not considered a clean or a, what would the word be, appropriate 
occupation for anyone in the Jewish faith, much less if you went and stayed in their house. But Peter stays there. Meanwhile, a local God-fearing man named Cornelius, I'm telling you, people who are still having babies, I don't know why we don't have more Corneliuses around because his is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Cornelius and Peter have visions and they find each other and Cornelius is, again, not just a Roman, so a non-Jew, but he is a government official. He's quite uh, important. And it says that he and Peter have an interaction. Cornelius comes to understand who Jesus is. And he, too, comes to know Jesus and is filled with the Spirit. And not just Cornelius, but his whole household. Well, this just blows Peter's mind. Because Peter's seen all these other things happen. And now we're going to the oppressor of Israel, Rome. Now even they're getting the Holy Spirit. Will God stop at nothing? Peter is interacting with Jesus. Peter's mind is getting rearranged. And finally, he says in verse 34, Peter says, I now realize that God shows no partiality to anyone, but instead accepts everyone who fears the Lord and does what is right. It says, too, that Peter stayed with them a few more days. I can imagine teaching them about Jesus. Now, this is like maybe a commercial break in the middle of the sermon. This is one of the passages uh, which the covenant bases our understanding of baptism on. So if you notice, if you've been a part of us, we baptize babies and we baptize adults. It says in this storyline that Cornelius, his whole household, was baptized. Now, if he's a Roman official and in charge of a lot of things, the likelihood of some littles being in that household, pretty good. And so we as a denomination, we say, this is not something we're going to argue about. It's up to you. Commercial over. So I just summarized about four chapters of the book of Acts. How are we doing? All right, everybody's okay? I should have told you to put your seatbelt on, but I didn't. I also want to say another note. When we see big chunks of scripture like this, I think it's one of the ways we can guard ourselves against false teaching and heresy. You can make the Bible say anything if you take out one or two verses. You really can. But when you take a whole book, you take three or four books, it's a lot harder to do that. Well, one of the themes, as I've been studying Acts, are the people. There probably are charts out there that would list all of the names that are in the book of Acts. But when we look at the leaders in this section and we think about how the Spirit is using them, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, Fruit is singular. We don't get to pick or choose out of this long list, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, the one that I often have a hard time remembering, and self-control. The people who are working with Jesus, they're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. They have this open and teachable, there's this guy named Philip, God says, go there, and Philip's like, okay. Even when things seem new and different, Peter, hanging out with the tanner, pretty sure he hadn't done that before. Peter receives a vision from the Lord where God literally rearranged his diet and his food traditions. And Peter's like, okay, 
I don't understand, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. We see these men kind to groups of widows, listening when they say, Tabitha, she just passed away, and guess what she's done? She's made all these amazing, amazing clothing, and then she gives them away to people in need. Peter, when he shows up with Cornelius, Cornelius bows at his feet as if to worship, and Peter says, get up, I'm just a man like you. You see this humbleness, this patience, this kindness, this goodness, and this gentleness, and probably some self-control, because I don't know, if your world is blowing up, don't you lose it a little bit? Maybe they had moments, but we don't see them here. Pastor Libby is preaching the same section over at the other location, and she said this phrase, which I literally think is quotable, and so I think I have it written down on a slide. She said, the gospel is happening to the disciples at the same time as it was happening through them. We see how the Holy Spirit is alive and active in these disciples, and they are the ones sharing the good news. Does that make sense? So the gospel is transforming them. It's happening to them. It is good news for them. And they're the ones spreading it around. Now, the other cool thing about this section in Acts is what happens with the movement of the good news. At this point, up until chapter 6, the gospel stays in Jerusalem. All of the believers, maybe they're a little bit on the outskirts, but it's essentially in a hub. Acts, uh, John Stott calls this section the foundation for world mission. This is the part of Acts where it becomes clear to anyone who's been paying attention that God is not just concerned with the Jews. Stephen, in all of his story of Israel, he talks about God being in Mesopotamia with Abram before he becomes Abraham, with Joseph in Egypt, again, a Gentile area, with Moses in Midian, all of these pagan lands. John Stott calls God a pilgrim God. God doesn't just live in Jerusalem. He's not just with the Jews. God is a global God. Believers pop up, like we said, in Samaria, Ethiopia, Cornelius, this Roman leader, and his whole household. So imagine you're a disciple. You've known Jesus for a couple of years. You watch the horror of the cross. You are blown away when Jesus comes back from the dead. And I bet at that point you're thinking, Whew, I have never seen anything like this. And then I imagine God going, oh, just wait. And all of their traditions, not that God got rid of them, but he added to them or expanded them. Last week, Brian said something about sometimes we have a tiny vision and we need God to help us have a God-sized vision. God needs to blow up our vision. That is what was happening to the disciples. They'd even been with Jesus. They'd even seen the miracles that he had done. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit. They had had these experiences in the early chapters of Acts where they're speaking in different languages. And then... Again and again and again, God blows up their vision. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I, I have tiny vision. And when Brian said that last week, I was like, yep, guilty. <laughs> Pastor Libby and I were talking about this section, and she has been reading a commentary 
that equates what happens in the early church with the planting analogies, analogies that Jesus used when he was preaching. And do you remember how Jesus talked about having a mustard size seed of faith? Or have you ever heard this? You just need a mustard seed size. A tiny amount. Jesus said that with that faith, or with a seed, multiplication can happen. A tiny mustard seed can become a large plant. That is good news for us today. Even if we have the tiniest faith, there's a man who has an interaction with Jesus, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's a mustard seed size faith. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes and descends, there's a sense of conviction. There's this moment where you realize, oh my, I don't have it. Or there's this area of my life. Or it's just normal. I realize my brokenness or my need. So today, as John has already led us into thinking about where do we need to repent, over and over and over again, when we have people interacting with the good news, oftentimes the response is, what do we do? And the disciples say, repent and believe. And then they also say, be baptized. Where does God maybe want to expand or rebuke our tiny vision? Maybe it's that we believe that there are a lot of Saul's out there. They are never going to come to know Jesus. They are way too wicked. Heck, they even persecute Christians. They are evil, and they are so far from the Lord, well, they deserve it. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that there are certain groups of people, and not just ethnic groups, but that can happen. I have a lot of friends who are Muslim. What does that look like for me to have a God-sized vision in those relationships? Or perhaps it's even within our own Christian tradition. I hear a lot of things said about Catholics sometimes. Do we have a tiny vision about what God does in other churches? Or maybe it's just me. I am just more concerned about my kingdom and what God could do in my own household with the five askers. Maybe God needs to expand my vision to look outside of myself. This book that I've been doing, I eat my breakfast, and I've been working on this. It has a couple of questions every day, and they're the same ones, which is sort of nice. I thought it might get monotonous, but it isn't. It just means it's not tricksy, which is good for the early morning, right? It asks the question, how is the Holy Spirit at work in me? Self-reflection. God, what are you doing? And sometimes all I think about is the fruit of the Spirit. How am I doing with love, joy, peace, patience? Okay? The second one is, what do you want to do in and through my life today? The gospel is at work in me and through me. Just like it did 2,000 years ago for the disciples. You know, they could have missed the good news in the midst of sharing the good news. Peter's a prime example of this. He could have totally missed what God was doing and missed seeing Cornelius and his whole household come to faith. But he was open to asking the Lord and changing his mind about some things. 
where might you need to repent? And how can you ask the Holy Spirit to be at work in you and through you? Let's pray. God, would you forgive us for excluding others that you do not from the good news? May we be like Peter saying, may we be like Peter saying, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. But in every nation, God accepts those who fear you and do what is right. God, would we be ones who fear you and that we would do what is right? Thank you that the good news is for the people of Israel and for the world, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all.